session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. Not doing Instagram Live, so I'll take calls if people would like to call in, uh, but I'll also be getting into the books of the week. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology by Chris Chambers. The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, a Manifesto for Reforming the Culture of Scientific Practice. Very bold subtitle there and hopefully to live up to that subtitle uh, when i read the book uh, the quick fix by jesse single a couple of weeks ago he mentioned this book uh, and i thought it'd be worth reading looking at psychology and the crises that are facing psychological research uh, related to things like studies not being uh, reproduced or uh, created again showing the same signs uh, different uh, aspects of psychological research have come under fire lately. So uh, this book apparently is an attempt to try to ameliorate that or come up with reasons first showing what's wrong and also what we can do as the field of psychological research to do better going forward. So we'll read that and share it with you not on Monday. Next Monday will be a holiday in the United States, so it'll be on Wednesday show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino, Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And I mentioned this last week that I can't remember who recommended this to me, and I didn't get a message. I don't think I did. I didn't see one uh, about who made this recommendation. I'm glad they did. I found it quite interesting looking at this concept of being a rebel, something that usually is seen in a negative way. Uh, but as the subtitle says, why it pays to break the rules at work and in life. And Francesca Gino, the author, Gino is the author, and she is a professor at Harvard Business School. And so a lot of the book did seem to relate to business, although it does say work and in life, and it does relate to life in a lot of ways. But a lot of what she discussed surrounded business type settings. Um, but I'll get into what she talks about as the five talents that rebels have and also some ideas of how you can incorporate them into your life. So to begin with just this concept of being a rebel, as I mentioned, usually it can have like a fun, exciting connotation, but we usually think of them as bad people who cause trouble, um, do things in a bad way. <clears throat> don't help in progress because they're making things go backwards, actually, which is kind of the opposite of what she describes in the book, but tend to be disruptive and negative. We usually don't think of a rebel as a good thing, unless we're thinking of maybe in this exciting way, like a rebel without a cause, um, or maybe a certain phase of life. But we tend to think that as you get older, you shouldn't be a rebel anymore. But as she talks about in the book, actually being a rebel can make you 
uh, have a more exciting, happy life, but also that's what leads to progress. Because really, if we think about any time that things have progressed, someone had to do things differently, have a different idea, a different artistic direction, a different political idea or social idea, whatever it might be, it always has to be different, which is the opposite of following all the rules, which is what we tend to think is good. And so I think this is one of the paradoxes that we have, that we always have to balance in life, things like stability and flexibility, but it's having people in society, but also in ourselves individually, following sets of rules or patterns, but also having the flexibility to think differently, to push and think outside of the box as well. You can't have progress without trying something different, which means you have to go against the norm, but that is in a way frowned upon. So you can see how this paradox can create some tension, but we try to find that balance as we do in all aspects of our lives. Uh, many things like closeness and intimacy or closeness and space when it comes to intimacy is another one of those paradoxes that we try to balance. But I think that this act of being rebellious or mindset of being rebellious or thinking differently, but also being able to be within the confines of a society, there's a balance there as well. And also, of course, this book promotes this concept of breaking the rules, doing things differently, being a rebel. But it doesn't mean that all rule breaking is good just because you're doing things differently. It reminds me of the quote by John Wooden, the famous longtime UCLA basketball coach, don't mistake activity for achievement. Don't mistake activity for achievement, meaning that just because you're doing things differently doesn't mean that's better. So sometimes people think, well, I'm not just following the rules or following the norms. I'm doing something different. That can be good, but just because it's different doesn't mean it necessarily is. It might not actually be adding. Sometimes breaking the rules takes away as well. But we do recognize that the people we tend to respect throughout history were in this way rebels in the way that she talks about in the book. Another thing that I always find interesting is that in hindsight, we tend to really like rebels that made progress. But a lot of times when you are living with those people, if you're contemporary contemporaries of those people, you might not actually like them. So someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who only died a few decades ago, but when he was alive, although now people from right and left and everyone in America is, is, uh, uh, likes him and on Martin Luther King Jr. Day will post quotes and pictures of him and call him a hero. But when he was alive, he wasn't so popular amongst everyone. It's hard for us to believe that now when he's almost ubiquitously popular in America. But back then he was not. He was considered even dangerous to the government in ways that he was spied upon and things like that. So uh, rebels tend to, at times they get appreciated during their own lifetime. Sometimes they're not, or at times they're appreciated by some, very appreciated by them, but then by others really disliked also. So in the book, she does talk about how we can look at this concept of being a rebel as actually a positive thing. And it doesn't have to be, you have to change a whole field of 
art, science, or politics. It could also be in small ways in your own life. And then she lists or has chapters on each of the talents that she describes as when you talk about rebel talent, she says there's five talents that they tend to display. And so I'll go through those now. The first one is a talent for novelty. So this is the idea of looking for new things, not just staying within the same routines that you have or the same interests that you have. And so she describes how rebels tend to have this desire for novelty. A lot of times the talents that she talks about, you can also look at them as interests or desires, but they have a, a talent for looking for novelty or wanting novelty in their life, uh, looking at things in a different way, which is also another one, but trying different things. And she shares the author herself how she, for her husband, got them improv classes and they both were very nervous about it. And he actually wasn't so thrilled about it, even though his, it was his present. But it turned out to be really good because it, it let them try something new, which was very much um, expanding their horizons. The second one is a talent for curiosity, which, as you can see, they're related. And if we think of the mindset of the rebel that she talks about, it's a very open one, open to new things and also wanting to understand things, curiosity. And so as children, we all tend to be very, very curious. It's almost like a natural um characteristic of children, it tends to get less. Some of it could be natural, but a lot of it could also be that we are more and more shown that we should think in a certain way that's going to benefit us. Follow the rules, sit in class and pay attention. Don't challenge the teacher too much. Don't come up with a totally new idea. Just do the right thing to get the good grade, those types of things. So we unfortunately don't really foster curiosity so much in our educational system and in society at large, but rebels tend to be curious. They're not just okay with hearing how something is or just seeing something. They want to understand how does it work. And so that also can make it so you'll, if you understand how things work, that can help you see if, well, maybe things could be different as well. It can help you see that once you understand the why. But if you don't understand the why or want to know the why, you just assume that things are the way they are and they should be that way. And that itself is a big aspect of this rebel talent or being a rebel is that you're not going to just take things as they are and assume that if it's this way, it's meant to be this way, which is how we are with a lot of things. We just think, well, if everyone's been doing it that way, we should keep doing it that way. And that's not a good enough answer ever. It can be a starting point, and you might even think, well, if they've always been doing it this way, is there some reason? That's the curiosity part, too. Let me understand the why. Maybe it actually is for good reasons that I don't understand or I'm not seeing yet, and someone might explain to you. Or it could be that this is just the way we've been doing it because that's the way it's been done for some time, and we keep doing it that way. She actually shares an interesting study I think she herself worked on where they had people fold shirts. And so they would teach them, they would watch someone folding shirts in two different rooms. One of the rooms, it was done in a fast way, efficient way. The other one had some extra steps that made it take longer. And they slowly started replacing them with new people that were part of the experiment. And what they found was that even though the original people that were folding more slowly or more quickly were no longer in the rooms, there was now, it's almost like a culture that people were folding either more quickly or more inefficiently depending on the room they were in and so it's almost like a cultural tradition 
that is being passed down generation by generation here was happening in minutes. But we see that just because things have been done a certain way doesn't mean because it was the best way, the right way, or a good reason or a good enough reason to keep doing it that way. So being open to looking at things is very important, which is a third talent also relates to that, a talent for perspective, for recognizing that the way you see things is not the only way to see things or to see that thing, to be open to trying to look at things from a different perspective. And in this chapter, she shared the story of Sully, the famous captain who in the when there was a plane that he was piloting that was under distress because birds, big birds had gotten into the engines and they were basically going to crash or had to figure out what to do immediately. He had the perspective of seeing that the Hudson River could be a runway even though he had never landed a plane in the water and actually in their simulations even, you can't do that. They usually don't allow for that, at least before. Maybe now they do. But he was able to have that perspective that that's a long and flat surface, although exactly not flat, it's water, a body of water. But he was able to do that and likely saved many lives because of it. So rebels tend to recognize that their perspective is just one way of seeing things and they're open to challenging that within themselves and also having others help them challenge that as well, which is related to the next talent, which is a talent for diversity. In this chapter, she also talked about diversity within groups and things like that and how that makes for better outcomes in lots of different ways, Uh, but even diversity in how you as a rebel will learn about the world, that you might talk to someone who would appear to be so different from your field or the problem you're working on or looking at, but recognizing that people in different um, domains, fields, whatever it might be, professions, actually can help you understand a problem better. So there again, there's an openness, as I was saying, openness and a non-judgmentalness in a lot of what they do, but there's a talent for diversity and seeking out others. And also in talking about um, diversity, you know, one of the things people will say is, well, if diversity helps groups, why is it harder or feel less smooth when groups are less diverse, which is true, when groups are more homogenous, more the same, they actually run more smoothly. So it's more comfortable for the people in the group. But like a lot of things that we um, do that are comfortable, it actually doesn't mean you're doing better. Sometimes it's worse. And so the fact that diverse groups might be a little bit less smooth is actually what can make them more successful because there's people with differing opinions, because people might not see the things the same way, they actually won't just assume everyone sees it the same way and they'll question and challenge things more. And as a result, they're less likely to fall prey to certain biases that maybe the whole group is holding, or they don't want to challenge idea because they want to get to consensus more quickly. Things like groupthink can take place or can take effect. Because of that homogeneity, it actually can be a disadvantage, even though it feels easier and more comfortable in the moment. So here's another example of how comfort should not be our guiding value. Things that make us comfortable 
sometimes can actually be the worst things for us and might be lulling us into a dangerous place. So diversity in groups, sometimes people hear this and think, well, it's just some kind of PC thing or trying to be woke or trying to be progressive in some ways. And sometimes I'm sure people take it too far in the ways they talk about any topic, including something like diversity. But there is genuine value in having diverse groups in a variety of different domains. Uh, and she brings up several business domains that this happens in problem-solving domains, where we see that having people who have diverse perspectives, who are diverse, is actually very helpful. This also reminds me of the book Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes, where she was saying there's no way for science to be perfectly unbiased. We're human beings and humans have biases and they're the ones doing the research. So just because they're trying to do science doesn't make them immune to it. But when we have more people with different perspectives, that diversity in a way can pool the, the biases or help people see each other's biases so we're less likely to be blind to something. It won't make it perfect, but it can make us better at, at looking at those biases and becoming more unbiased. So uh, almost done talking about the book, but I want to add a little bit about the few um, last parts. So I'll continue after the break. Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino, Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And so, as I mentioned, there are the five talents that she describes as the rebel talents or talents that they tend to have. And the last one, we have the talent for novelty, curiosity, perspective, diversity. The last one is a very important one, a talent for authenticity, meaning being themselves, not afraid to be themselves, even being vulnerable or showing weakness, and even actually how sometimes showing a weakness will make us more likable to others. They feel like we can relate. A lot of, as I mentioned, the book, it seems to be from a leadership perspective. So there's stories of CEOs and founders of companies and a famous chef uh, that go throughout the book. And so an authentic leader is not afraid to acknowledge mistakes, weaknesses, even might even welcome feedback uh, to let people know they want to know how they can do better. So we sometimes think that if we want to be a leader, we have to show that we are strong and perfect and don't make mistakes and don't question ourselves. But actually, people tend to do better with leaders who are actually more open to showing that they're human and they can benefit from learning from others, that this is who they are, here are mistakes that they've made, that, that I'm not perfect, and this is a process, and you can be part of that process. And just being authentic overall makes us feel better. If it's in your work life or in your personal life, whatever it might be, the more authentic we're being, you feel better too. And so that's a feeling you get about the rebels that she talks about in this book. They all seem passionate about what they're doing, excited about what they're doing, and feel good that it's in alignment with who they are. And that's the last one, which is very important, which is authenticity. And we can also think that really to make a positive change or to make the best and positive impact you can have in whatever field it is or in life in general, the more you are yourself, the 
more of an impact you can have. Because if we try to be like others, we can't do it as strongly as we can be ourselves, play to our own strengths, express our own talents in their fullest extent. And this is another part of that paradox I was talking about earlier, where we can feel that we need to follow the rules to be liked. We need to be like everyone else to be liked and to do good and not get in trouble. Also, another uh, paradox or uh, that we have to balance is this sense of not being rejected, wanting to be included, but also wanting to be ourself. And there's a push and pull there of, okay, if I just follow the rules and do what other people will like, at least I won't have to risk rejection. But then you can feel inauthentic and not feel so alive. And so there can be also this pull towards authenticity, being yourself. And although you will likely face some backlash almost always, if you do your own thing, if you try to make your own path and be yourself, but people tend to be more drawn to those people as well. And what you'll find is that you're going to be possibly rejected by even some people, but the people that stay with you or the people that come towards you, they'll be coming towards the real you or much more the real you. And that'll feel better for you too, because you know that they're liking your, you for who you are, not for something you are pretending to be. This is actually the neg another negative part of being inauthentic or trying to belong or being pulled too much by that desire is that even if people like you, you will have this feeling deep down, but yeah, they like me, but not necessarily for me, for this way I'm being, or I'm putting away parts of myself. And really, when you think about the whole world, and if you imagine everyone expressing their talents and abilities, their un unique combination of factors that make them who they are, we would have a much better world. I know it sounds like this utopian type of an image and how does that even happen? And we still need things to get taken care of. So I don't mean everyone just becomes, let's say, something artistic. Sometimes that's what we think it means to just be yourself and do whatever you want. But I mean that everyone tapping into their own strengths and abilities at 100%. And not only is it for us that we should do that to express ourselves, but really another way of looking at that is that we owe it to the world, that it's your responsibility in a way to become the best version of yourself, to develop your unique talents and abilities to their fullest extent, to then have the most positive impact on society. So you can imagine someone who, in a simplified way, is a scientist uh, working on medication to treat cancer. And yes, it's for their own benefit that they can make money, maybe become well-known to do something that's a breakthrough in the field. But also we could say they owe it to the people who are suffering, where there is a sense of there should be a sense of responsibility that I can have a positive impact. I could save lives if I do my best work by working hard, learning more, trying my best, using my talents to the best of my ability. It's not just, oh, it feels good to me to be the best version of myself and what comes with it. There, it can be a sense of duty to the world and a responsibility. And at times that can be even more motivating. Of course, we all want to take care of ourselves and feel good about our lives and experience those good things. So that can be a big motivator. But we know that when we feel responsible 
for something else, someone else, the whole world, that can be a much stronger motivator. If I told you you have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning tomorrow to do something for yourself, you might do it. But if I say you have a baby and you have to wake up at 4.30 because they have to take this medicine, everyone's going to be waking up on time. So we tend to get even more motivated when it comes to helping others or it can be a big push. And so I think when it comes to authenticity, we can recognize that being ourselves to the fullest extent actually helps the world more and we all actually owe it to the world it also will feel much better for ourselves as well and so uh, the book concludes looking at some other things about how we can become a rebel leader and it's interesting that in, in a way she essentially says that the best types of leaders are one of the best models for leaders and and types of if you want to call it a society or culture, are pirates. And so she shares about pirates in the 1700s, 1800s, and how even though we think of them as, you know, immoral and and so bad, and of course they were, they were robbing people, robbing ships and, and, and causing lots of destruction and death. But as far as the way they function, she talks about how it's a very democratic type of a functioning society of sorts that the leaders were very much democratically picked and anyone could be that anyone from the group could and if the leader wasn't doing things well everyone could vote to have him uh, removed even to the point where he might be left on an island or or kicked out Uh, and everyone's voices were heard and they were very diverse especially during that time even they had black um, crew members and even they had black members that could be elect, elected to be the captain of the ship at a time when in America there was still slavery for another, I think, uh, 100 years or so. So it was kind of interesting that she was saying pirates tend to be good or this type of mindset of the pirate can be very good of fighting the internal pressures and the external pressures that might prevent us from being a, a rebel in a good way. So uh, it was an interesting book. As always, I like books that give me a different perspective. And I'm not just saying that because that's one of the talents she promoted in the book or describes for people who have a rebel talent. But this notion that rebels are actually something uh, good and that we want to be more rebels in the way we live our life and even in our relationships. So that was Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And so I wanted to continue discussing this theme of being a rebel, of being your authentic self. And so to me, it's an interesting analogy that we can look at how we treat ourselves, our relationship with ourselves, and the relationships we have with our romantic partners. So Stephen Mitchell in the book, Can Love Last?, he, uh, you know, it's a, a question that he answers in the affirmative that it can last, but of course, it's not just luck, as many people think. Oh, those two are so lucky; they're still in love years after being married. It's what they do, mindset, also the effort you put into the relationship that will make or break that love, as far as having it last or not. And so, in that book, he talks about how, when we're in a romantic relationship. What people often experience, and you hear it so often, is, oh, you get bored after time. You're going to be so bored with your partner. Yeah, marriage is good, but you have to get bored of your partner. And so he says this is another one of these paradoxes or enigmas that we try to balance, that when we first meet someone, part of what creates passion, that spark, is the unknown. 
you're getting to know them and it's exciting. You're, of course, attracted to them if you're getting excited by them. But also because you don't know so much, you feel excited. You want to know. You're filling in some of the gaps in your head. You're not sure. You're wondering. You want to keep knowing them. But as we get closer and we want to make a commitment, it can be a little bit scary to keep thinking, I don't know this person. I don't know them at all. And so, of course, we do start to learn about them more. But even more so, we tell ourselves we know them. And essentially what we do is we trade stability for passion. So we we give the passion away and we take stability and tell ourselves, I know this person completely. And that makes them now boring to us. The passion is no longer there of thinking this person is still exciting. I have so much more to learn about this person. I want to continue to know them. I know that I never fully knew them, but they're also evolving. And so sadly, we do this in a joint way. Of course, it's not explicitly stated in any way, but it's just how we approach the relationship is that it's safer to feel like I completely know you. But unfortunately, when we do that, the passion can go away. And that's when we can feel bored. Oh, I know what you're going to do. I know what you think and say, the activities you do, how you're going to respond to this. Even sex can turn into a very routine thing where the spontaneity is no longer there. The uh, ability to be free and be one's own self is lost because we're essentially saying, I'm going to put you in this little box which means you can't do so much. But that way, at least I know exactly what you are and who you are, and I can feel safe and comfortable. So we trade passion away and we get stability, but also with it, we get some boredom if we go too far. So it doesn't mean we pretend like we don't know our partner at all. That's not really possible. And it's not even true. You do get to know them. And part of that intimacy is that knowing of each other. But we have to find that balance of also recognizing as much as I know you and I'm getting to know you, spend time with you, I know I can never completely know you that I can always continue to know more about you. There are things about you I don't know. You're multifaceted and complex, so I can never fully know you. And I also know you're continuing to evolve and grow. So even if I know you or knew a lot of you, at some point in time, that is going to change. So this happens in our relationship with our romantic partners. But what I'll talk about after the break is how we also do this with ourselves that in our own lives and with our own characters and what we do in our lives, we tend to trade the, what might seem like passion for life and passion for ourselves to trying to understand ourselves better with a stability and a comfort that is more secure, but much more boring because we are all much more complex and have facets that we haven't even discovered ourselves. So in the last segment after the break, I'm going to talk a bit about how we make our own relationship with ourselves and our lives boring, but how it doesn't have to be this way. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about how in our romantic relationships, we can trade the passion that comes with not knowing or recognizing we don't fully know our partners for the stability of feeling that we know them completely, but that feeling also comes with boredom because the passion goes away. And I was making the comparison of the relationship we have with ourselves where the same thing seems to take effect. 
where we would rather think we completely know ourselves, our likes, our dislikes, what we are good at, what we should do with our lives, the relationships we have, the types of relationships we have, because that is more comfortable and gives us more of a sense of stability than recognizing that there's probably a lot about ourselves that we don't know. And this can be a little bit puzzling for people when we say you don't fully know yourself. And, and there's a lot of cliches about them in type of self-help books and people that talk about self-help type of topics might talk about this. And it's very, because it is very true, lots of times there's a truth to it. Sometimes it's just brought up in a uh, kind of exaggerated form. But if we really think about knowing ourselves, what does that really mean? First of all, we very often are not even in touch with ourselves in the present moment. Mindfulness that comes from um, having a meditative mindset or the sense of being in the moment means that I'm going to be more aware of my experience in the moment. But most people are much more mindless. They're not really in the moment. They're thinking about the past or the future. They're distracted by something. They're doing multiple things at the same time. And we are often avoiding our thoughts and our feelings, which is why so many people have such a hard time meditating. When you first try meditating, for most people, you might say, okay, do five minutes. And five minutes doing almost anything doesn't seem like a lot. But of course, it can feel like a lot. Let's say if you're doing something like planking, where you're trying to hold that position for five minutes. And that's, in a way, what people tend to feel like when they're first meditating. It's this very uncomfortable feeling. I remember myself, even the first time I, times I would do it, I would think for sure my timer is not right because it can't be only as in been five minutes yet. But people feel very uncomfortable precisely because we're forced to just sit with our thoughts and our feelings and they can make us uncomfortable. We might not feel very good. We might feel sad. We might feel anxious, on edge, uneasy, all sorts of things that don't feel very good, which is why we try to distract ourselves. But unfortunately, when we distract ourselves or keep on distracting ourselves, we don't actually know what's going on with ourselves. We don't know what we're feeling. And when you don't know what you're feeling or what's going on, you also can't make things better. So we just stay in this perpetual cycle of distraction for a lot of our lives. I just don't want to feel too much because it's too overwhelming or doesn't feel good. So we keep distracting. Many people wake up, grab their phone. They're on their phone all day doing things. Even when they're doing something, they're doing something else. When they have free time, they're staying distracted and keep doing things. And then even when they're going to sleep on their phone, watching TV, doing something till they fall asleep. And people might think, oh, it's just because I, I like to do things like this. Or, um, you know, even when people say I can't fall asleep without the TV on. There's reasons for it. Sometimes even people who've been abused or have trauma might have certain experiences of not wanting to feel alone. So I'm not going to say it's always coming from a bad place or or I should say it's not always coming from a place that uh, is just distracting in the way that we're trying to get away from our feelings, even though that would be another example of that. But for many of us, we might be doing that because we just don't want to feel whatever it is we're feeling. And now that I'm saying it, even in that example, it could be the sense that what they're feeling is too overwhelming. This feeling of being alone or feeling vulnerable might make someone feel that they need some background noise. So it could be that we feel very afraid, or it could just be the discomfort of feeling our feelings where it's easier 
to distract. But if we actually take a look inward, we'll get in touch with what's there. And so this gives us an indication of how it can be possible to not be in touch with yourself and to not know yourself very well. Just because you are the you that's experiencing your existence doesn't mean you're in touch with it. Just like there could be something going on with your body that you don't know about. You get a blood test or you get an x-ray and it turns out, oh, you know, there's this fracture here that you didn't know about. It, it's possible, even though it's your body, that you don't know a lot about it, or there's a lot we can say you don't know about it. Similarly, when it comes to your psyche and your emotional life and existence, there's a lot that you don't know. Um, so if we actually turn towards ourselves inside and see what's there, we'll find out that there's much more that we haven't known about ourselves because we've been afraid to face it and we can get to know it, but only if we look within. So we don't know ourselves in a lot of ways and sometimes we don't even know what we want. Uh, this is another aspect of feeling more comfortable the way that we are. Many people in therapy, different things are explored, but sometimes we look at obviously work and how they're feeling about career and those kinds of things. And something I've noticed is that, of course, we all think, well, I want to have my dream job. I want to have my dream career. But many people don't want to think about what their dream job or dream career is because it might require that they make some big changes. And that's pretty scary. And as long as I don't know, I don't have to feel the guilt of or the feeling of regret that would come with not trying to fulfill it. So someone has a job and they're working in a company and they know that their dream job is to actually start their own business doing something in particular. It could also be switching careers completely, a totally different field. That would actually be their dream or where they think they would be best, but for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're not sure if they can do it. Maybe it's how society or their family will judge it, even how they might judge it. They might be afraid to go in that direction. So what I've noticed is this interesting, almost paradox. You would think, well, of course I want to know my dream so I can make it come true. But people actually are afraid to know their dreams sometimes because then they know it'll be up to them to make it true. And they can no longer pretend or have the ignorance of not knowing what it is. So if I know my dream is to do X, but every day I'm not doing X, I'm going to feel like, ugh, like look what I'm doing with myself in my own life. So people are afraid to know that desire because that would mean they have to do a lot of things that require change, that require effort, that require facing the unknown and the unpredictable that could come their way when they go in this new direction. Why don't I keep going down this path, this road that I keep going down every day, which I know instead of risking going some direction that could be much better, but what if it's not? What if I get hurt? What if I'm not successful? What if I go for my dream and I can't do it? So I can't even do the thing that I said I wanted to do. And so for all those reasons, we actually see that a lot of people don't want to know what their dream is. And so similarly, that's one aspect of ourselves that we might avoid knowing, but also we see this in how we live our lives day to day, the kind of activities that you do. You probably think, I know what I like doing and not like to do, but we haven't tried lots of things. And sometimes you might know you don't like something based on just seeing it, but you oftentimes don't know or experiences or even aspects of our personalities. So here's where the parallel between 
the relationships we have with our partners and the relationship we have with ourselves is very true because people often think, oh, my partner, he or she was, is this way or they can't do this or that way or they're not good at that or they would never be up for this if I bring it up to them or if I need them in this way emotionally, they wouldn't do that. And yes, people are limited. I'm not saying everyone could do everything exactly the same. That doesn't make sense. But people are much more capable than they realize how we judge them. And the same goes for us. We're afraid to allow ourselves to, let's say, express some feelings that we never do. If we have put certain feelings into our shadow as something I shouldn't express, I shouldn't express sadness around people because they won't like me. Well, then you're out of touch with that feeling. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You're just not in touch with part of yourself or you're not expressing a part of yourself. So we also have to be willing to break the rules within our own head, break the culture of who I am in recognizing that it's probably much more complex than you're allowing yourself to see because we're choosing that comfort and that stability of thinking we know ourselves completely rather than recognizing that there's much more about ourselves that we don't know. Because until you face something, you oftentimes don't know what you're going to experience. We actually know that we're quite bad at something called affective forecasting, meaning predicting what we're going to feel when something happens. Oh, oh! if this happens, I would be so happy. I would cry out of tears of joy. Uh, if this happened, I would be devastated. I wouldn't be able to handle it. So many times with clients, they've talked about things that they might go through and what they would feel, and it turns out it wasn't true, or they recognize they've gone through something that they didn't think they would be able to handle. They didn't think they would be able to manage something, but they did, and they handled it, and life goes on, and they can be amazed by their own strength. And that's something that I always actually love about therapy is that you see people constantly facing and overcoming things that they thought they couldn't face and overcome. And so you see that people are much more stronger and much more capable than they think they are themselves. Of course, other people can underestimate us and that doesn't feel good. But the person that underestimates us the most is us. We do it to ourselves. We think, oh, I could never do this. I could never handle this. I need someone to do it for me or I can't do it at all. We're in a way afraid to see our own strength or afraid to test it. But we have to be willing to test it to see what happens. You don't know what you're capable of. And you also don't know what you would feel in different situations. You might think, oh, if I tried that, it would be too scary for me or I wouldn't like it. But it could actually be the most exhilarating thing you can experience. Or when you overcome the anxiety that comes with doing that new thing, then you'll see how much you enjoy it. Oh, I can never get there. Or, yeah, there's that dance class, but I don't like being around people. But maybe if you face that anxiety and see that you'll get past it, then you can actually see that you really enjoy what's on the other side. And so often we are very afraid to try new things because we don't know how it's going to go, which is true. And so as I'm saying this, I'm not implying in any way that every time you try something new, it's going to go well. Sometimes you'll be right that it wasn't something you like and it will be a bad experience. But until you keep trying these different things and allowing yourself to have different experiences, you won't get to see 
what you like or don't like or what talents even you might have or something you might have a passion for because you didn't give yourself that opportunity to experience it. This reminds me of a quote I actually saw quite recently that I think is so beautiful and related to this point, which is by Joseph Campbell, which is the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. So oftentimes the things that scare us the most to face, if we actually face them, we go into those caves that we're afraid of because it's so dark and we don't know what's there, that unknown. What's in that cave can be the greatest treasures that we can experience, the treasures that we seek. And so we have to give ourselves that opportunity, meaning that we have to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. So if we think of this quote, if you're walking on a path and it's well lit and comfortable and easy, it's like, let me stay there. Why would I go into this cave where I don't know what's in there? But if we don't give ourselves that chance to experience those things, we won't recognize all the beautiful gems that are within ourselves. So those treasures that we seek in this type of quote or in my uh, description of what I'm talking about right now, it doesn't mean even some gem as in wealth or fame or something good in that way. We recognize the goodness within ourselves, the capabilities we have, the skills we have, the things we might actually really enjoy experiencing if we allow ourselves the opportunity. So To be a rebel in life, as I was talking about in the book by Francesca Gino, that can be very important, a lot of the things that we do. But another aspect of that is recognizing that we can be a rebel within ourselves and allowing ourselves, having some of the talents she talked about, to try new things, be novel, uh, try to be curious about life and about ourselves, try to understand ourselves better. And then we might see that if we recognize ourselves as something that we'll never fully know, We'll continue to give ourselves opportunities to grow and to have incredible experiences to see that we can have a passion for ourselves and for life and that life does not have to be boring. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.